Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. And I'm Phelan Johnson. And if you're a new listener, this show is an irreverent, kind of weird look at the good, the bad, and the ugly parts of Canadian history. If you've been listening to this show, then you already know that, and thanks for listening. We are not historians. We are just two curious people trying to find out all about Canadian history, the stuff that gets regularly swept under the rug. I'm Mohawk and Tuscarora from Six Nations. And I'm a first-generation Black Barbadian Canadian originally from Alberta. I think that's a pretty good primer on the show. Oh, um, and also, uh, we are both recording this in our closets because in case, I don't know, in case you haven't heard, there's a global pandemic going on, just so you know. That's right. What a way to start our season three. so good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ready? Yeah. Okay. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey, Leah. Hey, Phelan. Okay, so a while back, we got a suggestion from a listener. This came from Jen Wotovich. Jen reached out over Twitter, and she asked us to take a look into the history of one of Canada's most iconic creatures, Sasquatch. I remember that. You got really excited. Yeah, I I do get really excited by this stuff. I love things that feel mysterious or things that are kind of terrifying. I And I have a theory about why. Okay, why is that? I think it's because if you grow up on the res, you hear a lot of stories about creatures and beings that are of another realm, like not of this world. Like on Six Nations and in some other Haudenosaunee communities, you grow up hearing about the monkey dog. Um, okay, what is that? That sounds terrifying. <laughs> what, what's it all about? Okay, so the monkey dog is a half monkey, half dog creature. Okay, and which part is the monkey? Is it a monkey body and a dog head or a dog? Uh, no, no, body? other way around. It's actually, um, it's the, the monk, there's a monkey head with the, uh, with the dog body. Okay. Um, at least that's what, that's what I've heard. Oh, and it has glowing eyes. I don't know if I like that. No. Okay, so the monkey dog shows up if you have been misbehaving, getting into trouble, doing something you're not supposed to do. Okay, and what does it do? Like, does it call your parents and tell on you, or is it just very disappointed in you? Well, I I think it shows up and it just scares you. And honestly, I think if a creature like that showed up and... You know, I don't think it would take much more for, you know, me to, like, reevaluate and take stock oh, yeah. of what I was doing. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I would also say that the weirdest part about this story is that, you know, monkeys are not a North American animal, right? Yeah. I did some, like, very extensive Facebook research and I asked some people <laughs> and no one really has, like, there's a few theories about where the monkey dog comes from and why the monkey dog's around and, you know, stories of people seeing the monkey dog. But the origins are really 
sort of untraceable. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So when Jen, when she reached out, when Jen reached out with this suggestion, it got me thinking about how there's so many creatures like this in Canada. And what I thought we could do is expand a bit on Jen's suggestion and look at two of Canada's most well-known quote unquote mythical creatures. So I thought we'd look at a land-based creature, Sasquatch, and a water creature, Ogopogo. Now, I wanted to learn how these two went from being deeply rooted in indigenous culture and oral history and then how they ended up in souvenir shops, you know? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so we're going to take a look at Sasquatch and then we're going to move on to Ogopogo. And yes, I do think Sasquatch and Ogopogo have a lot in common. I was really interested to find all of it out, more than you might think. Like what, they have the same dad or did they just go to the same high school? I mean... They look really different. They definitely have different moms. Yeah, yes. Okay, well, both have (laughs) histories rooted deeply in West Coast Indigenous culture. They both reside in Southern BC and both have had their identities co-opted by settler culture. And now both's likeness is used to sell hideous t-shirts in souvenir shops. Oh, yeah. Well, I know that because I have a couple of those (laughs) t-shirts. I may be wearing one right now in my closet while recording this. (laughs) Surrounded by others. (laughs) So, you know, I think, you know, it goes beyond like hideous t-shirts and souvenir shops. There is a Sasquatch beef jerky. Uh, There's a Sasquatch beer, even Sasquatch beard oil. Uh, Oh, and there's a wine called Ogopogo's Lair. It's a Pinot Grigio if you want to go looking for it. Um, And there's an Ogopogo hot sauce, which doesn't really make sense to me. Um, There are books and jewelry, movies, like music. I just have to say Ogopogo having a hot sauce makes sense to me because he is a water creature, which means like if you go to any water community all over the world, they're a spicy people. Like they like their spices. So that okay. connects for me. All right. That's the through line. All right. And of course right. the Sasquatch beard oil also, they all make sense. That makes they sense. All make sense. I mean, cause somewhat, but also, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just bizarre. So these two have been immortalized in so many ways, right? Oh my gosh. Yes. Of course. The iconic movie, Harry and the Henderson. Remember that? Oh, movie? yeah. I actually watched clips and I called it research. <laughs> For ages, he has hidden in the forest, eluded hunters, baffled scientists, and remained a mystery until the Hendersons bumped into him. What is it? It's a major discovery. We have to take it home. <laughs> I love watching 80s movies and calling it research. It's oh, the best. me too. Okay, so I actually came across a review that the New York Times did, um, and they had this to say about Harry and the Hendersons. Vacationers take Woods Creature home. Witless rehash of E.T. <laughs> How dare they? Sir John Lithgow and a Sasquatch? I mean, it's Oscar worthy. That whole review is so scathing. I highly recommend uh, reading it. It's, it was really funny. I quite enjoyed it. And also, I don't think John Lithgow is a Surlia. Well, he should be. Well, maybe. Have you seen the crown? Did you see him yes. in the crown? He yes, played, he's quite good. Uh, what's his butt? The big prime minister. What's his butt? Oh my yeah, gosh, you I know, can't remember. Prime minister, what's his butt? Winston Churchill. <laughs> oh yeah, that guy. He, he 
He was like exactly perfect. No, he was. He's a great actor. No debate in that. And this is coming from a Winston Churchill expert, obviously. Yeah. I can't even What's his butt? Okay. Anyway, moving so on. So wait, um, is the Sasquatch related to like a Chewbacca? You know, no, is this all the same? No, I can of- see how you would think that, but they actually, they aren't. Um, but fun fact... Did you know that Peter Mayhew, the actor who played Chewie, had to have handlers in brightly colored vests follow him around during the filming of Return of the Jedi so that no one would like no one would mistake him as a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch and shoot him? Oh, my God. Of course I didn't know that. Why would I know that? But that's wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Because they were filming in Northern California, right, in the Redwood Forests. And, you know, it's kind of plausible that people might mistake him for a Sasquatch and shoot him him. yeah yeah i mean weirdly that makes sense i know okay so let's look into how sasquatch ended up being in movies and in souvenir shops let's go to where the real story of sasquatch begins all right let's do it one day at midnight the sun was so bright the moon had no light but i could see this big old Sasquatch said he was top-notch at playing hopscotch way up in a tree. So was that Stompin' Tom? He made a Sasquatch song? Yes, he did. Uh, it was called The Sasquatch Song. Uh, inspired. Yeah, I know. It's a good title. Um, but yeah, do you see? Sasquatch, you know, is a bit of a rock star. And that's the case sort of all over the world. There are reports of large ape-like creatures everywhere. We have Bigfoot in the U.S. In Australia, they have a similar creature called Yowie. Uh, In Russia and Asia, you have the Yeti, sometimes called the Abominable Snowman. Uh, You have the urine in China. There's creatures in Japan, in Sumatra, in Scotland, in Brazil, basically everywhere. Oh, I didn't know there were so many Sasquatch varietals traveling all over the world. <laughs> yeah, no, they, totally. But they aren't all the same. There's there's a lot of variety. Like Sasquatch or Bigfoot is reported to be about eight feet and weigh about 800 pounds and is covered in thick hair that is brown or black. Uh, Yetis are shorter, about six feet, and have gray or reddish brown hair. And uh, the urine in China is said to be about six feet tall with thick red fur or hair. So all of this to say that there are a lot of creatures like this across the planet. And so what's the deal with Canada's Bigfoot creature? Well, to uncover that story, we could visit any number of indigenous nations. So many have stories of Sasquatch-type creatures or beings. You know, the Haida, the Stolo, the Sequemic, the Kitsan, the Heisla, and so many other nations on the West Coast. They all they all have stories about Sasquatches. Uh, there was even a, uh, a sighting that was reported in a BC newspaper called the Daily Colonist Newspaper. This was like, <laughs> I don't know, a long time ago. Oh, the, the name of that paper didn't age very I know, well. right? I know. Uh, so the article claims that on July 4th, 1884, a gorilla-like creature was captured. Uh, the paper described the creature as... Something of the gorilla type standing about 4 feet 7 inches in height and weighing 127 pounds. He has long, black, strong hair and resembles a human being with one exception. His entire body, excepting his hands or paws, and feet are covered with glossy hair about one inch long. His forearm is much longer than a man's forearm and he possesses extraordinary strength. 
So the men who captured the creature called him Jacko. <laughs> I know. So what happened I to know. old Jacko? I yeah, this is like this is there's <laughs> some really low hanging fruit here. Okay, <laughs> I'm not touching it. I didn't nope, say anything. Me neither. Okay, okay. keep going. So uh, some thought Jacko was a dog or a bear or, as the Daily Colonist put it, a crazy Indian. Oh, well, that's very on brand for the Daily Colonist. So yeah, I thought so, too. It, yeah, it, it works. So, yeah. yeah, there was talk of Jacko being shipped to England to be exhibited. Oh, gross. Yeah, I know. Um, But that never happened. Jacko seemed to have just disappeared. And the story is sometimes regarded as a hoax. But I think it speaks to something about what was happening on the land at the time. We see the clashing of settler and indigenous thinking and worldviews. So while we could look into any number of stories today, I want to focus on the Staelis people and their story of Sasquatch. So in fact, the word Sasquatch comes from the Coast Salish word Saskets, which in Hulkamalem call means hairy or wild man. And so we learn once again that a lot of the words we use in English and French are a variation of a word from an indigenous language. It is. So the Staelis have been living in the Fraser Valley for thousands of years, and Sasquatch has always been a central figure in their community, a shapeshifter, a supernatural, spiritual being. To see one can mean good luck and can be a good omen. Sasquatch was and is very much a part of Staelis people's culture, and for many people, he's a symbol of the land, of uh, our responsibility to take care of the earth. So how did we get from that to some of the ridiculous incarnations of Sasquatch now? Like, how do we end up with this sacred being tied to a Chewbacca? And please don't send me messages about how Chewbacca is sacred. I know he is to some of you, but that's not what we're talking about now. <laughs> yeah, but like, but like this idea of like a cartoon character almost. How did we end up with that? So when Canada happened and the Indian Act was put into place in Indigenous communities, an Indian agent would have been put uh, sort of in charge of that community. And these officials, they were in charge of enforcing the Indian Act. Which meant? Well, which meant telling Indigenous people what they could and couldn't do. Much of the Indian Act was about suppressing Indigenous culture, language, and way of life. So this was the case in the Staelis community. Um, there was a man, their Indian agent, his name was J.W. Burns, uh, and he was there in the 20s and 30s. And the community was actually really kind to him. They even shared some of their Sasquatch stories with him. That's very generous of them. Yeah, Burns was fascinated with the stories, and he even wrote an article for McLean's titled Introducing BC's Hairy Giants, and it featured stories from some of the Staelis people uh, who claimed to have encountered the Sasquatch. The article was published on April 1st, 1929. April Fool's Day. Yeah. And it wasn't a joke, though. No, but some thought it might be. So in this article, Burns used the word Sasquatch instead of Saskets, which is how we ended up with Sasquatch. Okay, so the Indian agent gathers a bunch of indigenous stories, writes them down, sends it off to McLean's, and then he butchers the name of the very thing he's writing about. Basically. Well, yeah, some say it wasn't a mistake and that he was attempting to anglicize the word to make it easier for non-Indigenous people to wrap their heads and mouths around. Even the Staelis nation had their name anglicized to Chahalis or Chahalis, similar in sound, but not in the language at all. Um, Leah, would you read a section of the McLean's article? 
He was twice as big as the average man, with hands so long that they almost touched the ground. It seemed to me that his eyes were very large, and the lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face. Do hairy giants inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Many Indians beside those quoted are sincerely convinced that the Sasquatch, a few of them at least, still live in the little-known interior of the province. And so Burns went on to write over 50 Sasquatch-themed articles over his career. So I find it so interesting that the Indian agent, this J.W. Burns dude, he's put in charge of suppressing indigenous culture and would in some ways probably unknowingly help to preserve it in a weird way by writing all those articles by his own fascination with indigenous culture. Yeah, and you know, it is kind of weird because he profited off of these articles, but still many applaud his accounts in documenting them. In 1939, Burns actually donated, donated an important Sasquatch mask to the Vancouver Museum. Mm, I can hear the air quotes <laughs> yeah, in yeah, your voice. I, I really emphasize them there. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, it was not his mask to give. Um, and the mask was thought to have been lost for 75 years, but was recently repatriated to the community. Oh, that's amazing. Getting this mass returned after you I know. Know, 75 years. It just seems great. so unlikely. So it was found by James Leon, a stateless man who was at a repatriation event. And sorry, what exactly is a repatriation event? I mean, of course, I know. But for those listeners who have no idea, what is it? Some museums and cultural institutions in Canada and across the world have over the years collected items from Indigenous communities. How they came to have these items is somewhat, you know, dubious and pretty messed up. Uh, things were quote unquote donated, but a lot of the time they were just stolen. Things like pottery, beadwork, wampum belts, totem poles, even bones. And masks. And masks. So repatriation is happening on some fronts, but really so much of our stuff is in museums. Like I went to the British Museum in London a few years back and I almost barfed because I walked in and there's all these giant Haida totem poles. And I just felt so bad for them to be so far from home. Like these things, these, these items are living for many people in our communities and they need to be treated and cared for in really specific cultural ways. Oh my gosh, totally. I, I did that same trip. I went to a lot of the museums in London and, you know, you're going into rooms and it's like the India room, the Pakistan room, the Egypt room. You're like, wait, um, yeah. how did they get here? Yeah, I know. It is. It's like a, it is a bit it is a bit shocking. It's sad. It's sad. Yeah. But people like James Leon of the Stalus Nation are helping to return items. When he was at this event to witness a repatriation, he asked someone if they had seen a specific mask, a Sasquatch mask, that was carved and partially covered in bear fur, a mask that he had been searching across the world for for like 16 years. And, and you know what? They had this person that he spoke to at the museum. They had seen it. So the mask was given back to the community and it is now home. Well, that's good that the museums gave it back. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think some museums are now trying to get on the right side of history. And so hopefully we will hear more stories like that. 
The Sta'ala celebrate Sasquatch with the annual Sasquatch Days, a gathering that was started in 1938 and had over 2,000 attendees uh, coming from both Canada and the U.S. and across nations. Recently, the gathering has started to take place again, and it celebrates song, dance, food, and, of course, Saskets. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that sounds lovely. And can I just say, when we get out of here, can we make a promise to each other that we are going to Sasquatch Days? I mean, not only that celebration, but there, there's going to be people and food and so It just sounds like everything I want yes. right now. <laughs> Absolutely. And the salmon that they serve there, I've seen pictures of it online, oh and God. it looks amazing. Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points in miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. A Scotsman has seen a monster in a lake, and the Scotsman was absolutely stone-cold sober. What's surprising about this is that the lake isn't in Scotland. It's right here in Canada. We naturally sent reporter Bob Gillingham scurrying there with a camera, and he tells us now about the strange sighting of Ogopogo, the bashful monster who seems determined to help the tourist trade around BC's Okanagan Lake. It's definitely a disturbance going down the lake. It looked like, uh, at first, I thought there were large seabirds or something that were flowing but they were going too fast and it made a circular pattern around the lake and went back across the lake and as it went across the lake it was a great long object whatever it was it was a large mass and uh, it was undulating whatever there was no great odds sticking out or anything like that but it was definitely a wavy pattern so now let's travel to Lake Okanagan to see if we can catch a glimpse of the legendary Ogopogo. And in all honesty, if we wanted to find a lake creature, we could probably find one in just about any body of water in the country. Really? You think there are that many? Oh yeah, you've got Bessie in Lake Erie, Manny Pogo in Lake Winnipeg, Mussy and Muskrat Lake Ontario, Sadie in Saddle Lake Alberta. Someone on Twitter actually gave us that one. Um, Cressy in Crescent Lake Newfoundland and Labrador. Igo Pogo Lake Simcoe. Uh, you've got Champ in Lake Champlain. Oh no, boo, got... boo, boo, Samuel de Champlain, you... boo. Oh, okay. Because I thought you just booed the lake. Okay, I. No, I... no, we're doing the Champlain boo. That is a classic. Uh, Secret Life of Canada trope that we have to do now. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, it's been a while. Thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm yes, gonna. You may boo. I'm gonna continue you may to continue boo continue him. Continue on with your booing. <laughs> the man only, of course, not the lake and the creatures that live in it. Um, but you know what? You are so right that there are, are lake creatures in so many bodies of water because when I was with my family this past summer, we stopped at Lake Minnewanka near Banff, and you know there are a lot of stories that the Stony Nakoda um, really believe that there's a spirit in that water um, and that the lake is very sacred. Um, but of course, that 
was kind of co-opted and transformed by an, a man by the name of Norman Luxton, who created a new legend of the lake. He created this idea of a merman that was half fish and half man. He took a large fish carcass, dried fish carcass, and a skull he found somewhere. I think it's like a monkey um, and he glued them together and would charge people to look at the body of the lake monster. Because, you know, this lake actually is very, very cold. Um, it's a mountain lake, and it also has really high waves. He kind of connected, you know, the the tumultuous body of water to this creature, and people paid to look at this thing. And by the way, that thing is still on display in Banff. So it, at the at the trading post there, you can still go and see it. So it seems like, yes, every lake in Canada seems to have a creature. Okay, yeah. but let's talk about Ogopogo. Um, so Ogopogo is said to be green with a snake-like body that is around 80 feet long. Uh, some say that his head looks like a horse and others say it's kind of goat-like. Oh my God, sounds exactly like a guy I dated in university, yeah, first year. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Same. <laughs> all right. So there's no denying that Ogopogo is definitely one of the most famous of all the Canadian water creatures, I think. Like Ogopogo. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's the one you hear most Absolutely. about. Like, that's the Absolutely. one everybody knows. Yeah. Both Sasquatch and Ogopogo stories are rooted in indigenous oral history and lots of different indigenous nations have versions of mythical water beings but today we're just going to focus on Ogopogo who comes from the Okanagan people. So this was a being that was also co-opted by settlers? Yes, co-opted but not lost. So let's go back to a time before Ogopogo was Ogopogo. So the name for the water being is Nakhakaeku which translates from the Salish to the English as the sacred spirit of the water or the sacred spirit of the lake. Much like Sasquatch to the Staalis, the Chachaiku is very much present in the lives of many people of the Okanagan nation. And so what was the Chachaiku all about? You did really good with that, Trin. I think that was really <sighs> Thank good. You, you said I've been that practicing well. a lot. I've been practicing I one know, word. I really, one and word. I just, here's our, here's our uh, you know, Disclaimer. Our, um, I don't know. Yeah, here's our disclaimer. Uh, we we tried real hard. <laughs> we tried yeah. real hard with uh, <laughs> with the coastal languages. Uh, and I'm sorry if we make your ears bleed. Apologies yeah, in sorry. advance. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to speak with someone who has a deep connection to the spirit okay. of the lake. So I am Coralie Miller of the West Bank First Nation. Um, we're known as the Siilch people. We're also known as Skeluch, depending on which elder you talk to. <laughs> but we like the word Okanagan because that came from a bit of a misunderstanding from early surveyors. Gentlemen ran into a large group of us and said, what are you? And of course, when you ask us, what are you? We assume you mean, what do I do? So we responded with, oh, and Sukunakain. Well, no more questions were asked after that. And Sukunakain became Okanagan. And, w and what does it mean? So a sukunakain means to carry a message to the top. So when we break the word up, the spart means the skeluch, to uk means to carry, and the kain comes from the word jesiakain, which means to the top or to your head. So in a way, it means message carrier. So they would hustle their butts from one district to the other to deliver messages, and you had to be really good at running. Very cool. 
Yeah, and so I work at the museum, the Centripes Heritage Museum. I'm the museum assistant. I don't know how many times I'm going to say museum. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm the tour guide. I put up and take down exhibits and do the just a regular maintenance of the building. Today, I, wanna, I wanted to ask you if you could tell me a little bit about this creature that is said to live in Lake Okanagan. The the creature is named in Chachaitku. So to break that word down, N means inside. Chacha means miraculous, wonderful, divine. And Itkuch is how the water moves. Um, now, it has two forms. Its tangible form that you can see and touch every day is the actual water itself. Whereas what people have seen... That's its spiritual form, and it's often described as having the body of a serpent, uh, head of a horse, and the antlers of a deer. And, you know, I know lots of people eventually, you know, said that they started to see the creature. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, in your own life, when you were when you were growing up, did you hear stories about it? Like, oh, did you gosh, hear yeah. stories about it? And, and what were those stories? So my great-great-grandmother, she remembers, like, standing up on the bluff in Vernon and when you look down she could see a huge black serpent circling in the water now my great-great-grandmother was not a fibber <laughs> she believes that she also saw well Bigfoot but in our language it's not Bigfoot we call him Stronitum okay so they have a Sasquatch as well yes again many uh, west coast nations they all have very similar stories and so the way she describes the water spirit, I mean, it's so poetic. It's miraculous and wonderful and how the water moves. You know, I actually struggled to say the word ogopogo too, Coralie. Like it felt like a, a dirty word. Oh, yeah. Could we just add beeps for whenever we're saying ogopogo? The O word. <laughs> that could get really <laughs> annoying. Okay, okay. So we'll, we'll stick with ogopogo yeah. for now. So how do we get from the sacred spirit of the lake to ogopogo? Well, it takes a bit of time. Once settlers begin to arrive in the area, things slowly start to shift. In 1873, we have the first settler sighting recorded in West Kelowna by one Miss Susan Allison. Her description of a long snake-like creature was very close to what many indigenous people had described. And Susan would have had access to that knowledge. She and her husband were the first non-indigenous settlers in the area. And most importantly, uh, she spoke Chinook, which was a dialect that was used for trading in the area. Okay, so she would have been able to, you know, communicate with some clarity. She yeah, understood yeah, what was, exactly. was happening, yeah. basically. So in 1924, there is a big change for the late creature of the Okanagan. What happened then? This song. One fine day in Hindustan, I met a funny little man With googly eyes and lantern jaws, an old silk hat and hairy paws when I said to that quaint old chap, why do you carry that big steel trap, the butterfly net and rusty gun? He replied, listen here, my son, I'm looking for the Yoko-Poko, the funny little Yoko-Poko. His mother was a pollywog, his father was a whale. I'm going to put a little bit of salt on his tail. I want to find the Yoko-Poko while he's playing on his own Okay, so that song is called Ogopogo, the funny foxtrot by Cumberland Clark and Mark Strong. And Leah, would you read a few of the lyrics of the song for our listeners at home? 
Okay, his mother was an earwig, his father was a whale, a little bit of head and hardly any tail, and Okapoga was his name. That is a really unflattering description yeah, of him. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like someone <laughs> I dated in first year university. <laughs> Bringing it around. <laughs> Let's trade photos in the G-chat. Okay, so okay. I don't understand, though, what does this song really have to do with anything, to be honest? So the story goes that in 1924, this English music hall song was heard in Vernon, B.C., and this is where the name Ogopogo comes from. Uh-huh. Music hall. Like, is it like dance hall music? Any relation I, there? Yeah, I, I don't know, but maybe you could sing it in a dance hall style. Would you like to, uh, no, you wanna, I'm good. Thank yeah, you Yeah, because I thought so you much. could do Murder, She Wrote in, in the tune of Ogopogo. You know, Ogopogo. No. It's Ogo not Pogo. happening. <laughs> well, there, uh, you just did it, so I, I don't have to. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right. So English Music Hall was a mix of comedy and music, and it was popular in the Victorian era. It almost feels like early vaudeville to me. Anyway, so the account of this song, this sort of becomes the origin for the word Ogopogo. It's pretty vague, but the story is repeated in a few sources, so it does seem to be the root of the name. Okay, so it's like a mystery inside a mystery, basically. Yeah. So after this name comes into play, the creature becomes more popular with people claiming they have seen Ogopogo. According to OgopogoQuest.com, a site where people can record their sightings of Ogopogo, <laughs> sort of self-explanatory. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we have the following accounts. In 1926, you have 30 people who claim to have seen it. In 47, you have a group of boaters who claim to have seen it. In 59, you have a couple who have reported to see a quote-unquote tremendous creature with a snake-like head and a blunt nose swimming some 250 feet behind their motorboat. So around this time, a ferry company, so this is like, you know, the 50s, mm -hmm. there's a ferry company that they say that they... Um, they they have an ogopogo deterrent on board so that people feel safe on the on the ferry. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> so like what could possibly deter ogopogo? I mean, I'm assuming maybe it has a peanut butter allergy or like a wheat intolerance. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Just sprinkle some flour in the water. I don't know. So in the 80s, a tourist organization, they they offer a million dollars to anyone who can prove the existence or even catch Ogopogo. So this mania, it, it gets so intense that Greenpeace, they actually stepped in and got Ogopogo on the endangered species list. What? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so I asked Coralie about how she felt about people, you know, you know, trying to capture the spirit of the lake. We're only going to catch water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's it. So the thing about uh, Itku is um, it is a water spirit, yes, but it also is that metaphor of what the water means to us. Our water is sacred. It, uh, for the obvious reasons, it cleanses us, it sustains us, and it connects us. Uh, water has memory. Water can change its shape. Uh, humans were made up of water. And as women, we carry that sacred water in our wombs. And water also teaches us to be mindful because whatever you do upstream affects someone downstream. And just like any other kind of medicine, depending on how you treat the water, it can either be really good for you or it can be incredibly devastating. And you have to wonder what it's like for Indigenous people who are living in the Okanagan, like Coralie, watching this sort of mania take over. Because 
the Okanagan people have always said that the spirit of the lake, it isn't a monster. It isn't a demon. It's something that needs to be respected. Something that can teach us about our responsibility to water and the environment. Again, much like Sasquatch. For sure. So do you think people think of that now? Like, what do you think the future of the water spirit is? Well, I asked Corley about this. I wanted to know what she thought. Water spirit said there's not going to be as many sightings of it because the water's filthy. I remember I had someone coming over and they're asking me about Hogopogo. And I remember her eyes just widening when I told her that there's sewage being pumped into the lake. And that's the problem with being turned into a mascot is because people liken it to a little cartoon character or, you know, something that isn't real. It's just, it's a made up thing. And so when you do that, it's harmful because no one respects the water. No one respects what it actually is. There are sightings of both Nakaha Eiku and Saskats occurring all the time. There is so much grainy video, so many pictures, and so many stories on the internet. And I don't anticipate that sightings will stop anytime soon. And, you know, I don't think they should because maybe instead of trying to catch or capture these creatures, maybe we should take the lessons that they seem to be offering. Respect the land, respect the water, listen to those lessons. And if you are lucky enough to see something, regard it as a gift, as a responsibility. Recognize that you have just been called upon to do something for this land and for the water that we all share. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in my closet and Phelan's office in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It was written and hosted by me, Phelan Johnson. And me, Leah Simone Bowen. Our producer is TK Matunda. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger and CBC Archives. Our digital producer is Fabiola Carletti. The senior producer of CBC Podcast is Tanya Springer, and executive producer is RF Nurani. We are on Twitter at Secret Life of CAD. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Secret Life of Canada. If there is a story or a piece of history that you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks to our dogs for not barking while we recorded this episode. Yes. Stay safe, everyone. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.